There are problems with Jesus. There are problems with the Bible. There are problems with Christianity. There is difficulty and uncertainty with the gospel and the church. Simply, there are an array of problems being an issue for Christians and unchristians alike. And for anyone considering following Jesus or is currently following Jesus, there can be difficulty in trying to hike the mountains of the Christian faith with ridges on everything from the, from the doctrine of hell to cliff sides of Jesus' deeds and words on sexuality, marriage, divorce, wealth, poverty, lifestyle, and identity. Again, there are problems with Jesus for so many, if not the vast majority. So allow me to ask, what might your problems with Jesus be? Do you have any? Have you acknowledged them? See, Christian or atheist, agnostic, undecided, spiritualist, what is the steep ridge for you? What is the cliff on the mountain for you? Because as many problems that some here may have, I believe one of the deepest valleys in 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 the pilgrimage of faith or an understanding Christianity has to be, has to be the exclusivity of believing in Jesus Christ. This whole Jesus is the only way shindig. The firm belief that faith in Jesus is the sole criterion in getting to God. See, that being a problem for so many, right? That's not just a few of us. That's a problem for a lot of people. I mean, isn't that just narrow-minded bigotry? Isn't that the old way of thinking? Isn't that wrong? We as Westsiders and Angelinos and Californians, we, we don't think this way. But think about it. When does greatly change the world's view of the Bible on the gospel on Jesus? If Christians would wake up and realize that the peak, that there's one peak of the mountain, but many trails to it, right? Don't people say that? That religious divisions have caused more pain than good? So my job today as a Bible teacher is not only to acknowledge the problems with Jesus that many can have and do have, but also to reveal and remind that he is also the solution. See, exclusivity, this narrow door, needs addressing. It needs understanding. Because not only is it in the scriptures we just read, but it is a marble pillar in the house of Christianity. Now, why be able to cover all of it or do it exhaustively? Well, of course not. No, I, I won't be able to do that. I can't address every world religion or worldview or every philosophical, moral, or religious color on this Rubik's Cube. But with sensitivity and respect to the vast assortments of faiths out there, speak to what we do know. Speak to what I know, that being Jesus and his radical outrageous, earthquaking claims. And just so it's said for the record, as we enter into this sort of territory, I believe there is great beauty and great charity and great kindness in many other faiths. Our talk today should not result in, or should you hear me saying, Christianity is the best. 
You should not hear me saying that at all. And everyone else is smelly or whatever it is. That's arrogance. That's what I'm not saying. That is a different kind of exclusivity. We are to walk out of here with our heads bowed in worship, not our noses high in arrogance. So today we dissect and we analyze and we unearth all this busyness, all this business with Jesus being the only way. So we're going to cut into what so many call the myth of Christian uniqueness. The myth of Christian uniqueness. And I want our Bible verses that we just read to set it up for us today. Now, we're smack dab in a pretty serious situation. And if this is your first time here, I know these verses just read. It's like opening up in the middle of the book and just start reading. And you might be lost. So allow me to just for a moment sort of set up and narrate the scene. Peter and John, these apostles of Jesus, were on their merry way to the temple for prayer. They see a disabled man asking for money outside the entrance. And Luke, our author of Acts, who happens to be a doctor, makes sure to chime in and remind us in earlier verses that this man has not walked since birth. And Peter and John, they don't give him silver or gold, but in Jesus, they offer healing. Then the man, for the first time in his life, he stands and he leaps and he runs and he skips and he whips and he nays. Lord, forgive me. And everyone, and everyone around the temple has seen this man. Everyone around the temple, they know this man. They probably have spoken to this man. But they knew him as beggar and as the lame and as the crippled. And they see him now as something new. He is shouting and worshiping and leaping. And Peter, as we saw last week, You know, he sort of picks up on this growing crowd and he then gives this boisterous and impactful and to-the-point sermon. And Peter wraps up chapter 3 with everybody listening and he's basically saying, repent, turn your direction towards God, if you guys remember last week. And then we turn the page to chapter 4 within the book of Acts. And by doing so, we walk headfirst into a very different book of Acts. Collective church, from this point on, Acts will never be the same again. Thus, our talks and our discipleship groups and our Bible reading plan will never be the same again. Why? Because from this point on, in the book of Acts, opposition. Opposition like crazy. Opposition, pain, and hardship to any and to all who were following Jesus. If it's been smooth sailing in the open waters of Acts, we just sailed onto murky waters. There are black clouds growing. And I want us to see sort of the start in the eye of the storm. Look at verse 1. And as they... I mean the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they arrested them and put them in custody. So this is the portion of the talk that I would like to call the irritation of Jesus. See, what we just see uh, is Jesus was a problem then just as much as he is for people now. And like most problems that won't go away, they morph into irritation and annoyance like a mosquito. 
Now, if you know the story and the history of Jesus portrayed in the Gospels, you'll recall that the authorities, the ones that Peter's talking to, thought by denying Jesus, delivering him to Pilate, and destroying him, that this underground movement, this Jesus freak stuff, would stop. But Peter and John, followers of Jesus, are proving to be mosquito-like as well. Thus, the authorities of Acts 4, the Sadducees and the scribes and the high priests are starting to see that this gospel of Jesus is much like the Greek myth of the hydra, if you know what I'm talking about. The more you cut it down, the bigger it grows. The greater the attack on the gospel, the stronger it becomes. I'm looking forward to, in just a few chapters, it's just, you'll see that this opposition is the single greatest thing that's ever happened to the movement of Christianity and the church, but that's coming up in a little bit, but I'm excited. But before we get to the opposition, I want us to be able to crack open, again, even before we get to the exclusivity of Jesus, I want us to be able to crack open the why question. Why the attack? Why the annoyance? Why are they so irritated? I mean, what is it about the message of Jesus Christ that gets people so fired up? Christians, I'm assuming you know what I mean, and those who aren't Christian here, I'm assuming you too understand the hostility with the message of Christ. But correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't the message of Jesus Christ, isn't the message of Peter and John one of hope? and one of love, and one of life everlasting. So again, why the annoyance? Could it be that the claims of Jesus, that this truth drum that these apostles are just pounding on, that the undeniable proof of a crippled man leaping in plain view, that maybe, just maybe, Jesus could be all that he said he was. That the resurrection, the bedrock of all Christianity, was the actual catapult commission for God's mission. Maybe, just maybe, just maybe, maybe, the resurrection is real. See, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So for any and all who would have, get this, any and all who would have denied it or shunned it or rejected it or gone to great lengths to terminate that message, well, this has got to be one irritating, annoying moment, especially, especially for the Sadducees. Sadducees being these ruling class of the wealthy aristocrat. They're not this legal group, but they're extremely political and extremely influential, many of them being priests, and they were firm in their beliefs that anything unexplainable, like the resurrection, is folklore. These Sadducees, no, that's fantasy. But Peter and John stand up and they go, "Mm, I beg to differ. (laughs) And then we have this clash. Where it started with Peter on the defense, he quickly, by the power of God's spirit residing inside of him, goes on the attack. It's amazing. Well, at the same time, check this out. Peter gets a little sarcastic and snarky. I love it. Verse 7. 
And when they, the Jewish officials, had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, basically, ladies and gentlemen, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Hey, Peter is like straight out of the movie Mean Girls right now. I mean, he... He lays on the spiritual salsa and gets spicy. Look at this. Basically, he says this. Basically, he's saying this. A good deed has been done, dear rulers and elders, yet instead of gratitude, instead of a key to the city, instead of an edible arrangement, we spend... (laughs) I've always wanted one. Send me some. Somebody send me one. We spend a night in jail and receive hostile interrogation. What's the deal? Now, before we move on, can we acknowledge the transformative moment within this narrative? Witness the guts and the boldness and the fearlessness of Peter. Again, (laughs) the very same Peter who ran from children (laughs) and he just books it. These unskilled orators, this fisherman, far from courageous men, get this, far from courageous men, tell off the same officials who only a short time earlier crucified Jesus. Are you, are you kidding me? The very same exclusive claims made by Jesus are now given by Peter and John. Any one of us would be freaking out. We'd be freaking out. No one there would be wearing their WWJD shirt. We would be hiding our Greek tattoos. Nobody would drive by them with their not of this world sticker on their car. You don't do that around these officials. But here, Peter and John put their finger in their chest and say, look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Chicky mama, that is. What gives them such assurance to tell those officials and to say those words? To do and to say what allows them, despite of their social status, to bulldoze down the religious establishment of the day? I believe it was, the, uh, it was the reality of the resurrection. The apostles know then and forevermore to the core of their bowels that Jesus was who he said he was. So much so, they're willing to put their lives on the line. That's massive proof to exclusive claims in Christ to watch the disciples And the apostles go to the great lengths they have, even to the point of losing their life. That every claim of deity and his power over the grave wasn't a myth of Christian uniqueness, but genuine. If you're here and you're not Christian, know this. Please know this. Christianity by itself is not just believing that Jesus was crucified or that he was a super rad guy. But that atonement was made and forgiveness was possible. That salvation is here because there is an empty tomb where the dead son of God once laid. 
Our faith is dependent upon the fact that Jesus is risen. Christianity is very unique because of the centerpiece of their history, of our history, is not dead. Can I get an amen? Two of you? God bless you. This being the uppercut, this being the uppercut to the Sadducees and the officials in this moment. Did you notice they didn't ask if or how the healing of the crippled man happened? They can see it. They want to know who did this. Who did this? By what power, by what name did this? Did you do this? And they asked because the proof of the healed man. The proof of the healed man means one thing, right? The proof of the healed man means one thing. And it doesn't take Inspector Gadget to figure it out. If Jesus is healing, then Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then his claims are true. And if his claims are true, then there'll be many, many problems with Jesus. The philosopher Albert Camus once said, death is philosophy's only problem. Death is philosophy's only problem. So here's my point. If Jesus could defeat death, what does that make of your life? If Jesus could defeat death, what does that make of my life? If Jesus could defeat death, then all of life, for the authorities then and for our lives now, must be redefined. That means all relationships and all vocations and all finances and all giving and all past regrets and all future hopes and all desires and passions, all of life redefined. And only the author of life has a right to define and to redefine life. Friends, I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is that author. Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter, from last week, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. Christianity is very, 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 very unique because Jesus is unique. No other worldview, no other faith system, no other prophet or man has impacted this world like Jesus Christ. There's this incredible quote I'm going to read to you right now. It's chunky, but one very famous historian summed it up well. He said this, The character of Jesus has not only been in the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice, and exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. No one has lived a life so perfectly as Christ, has died a substitutionary death so innocently. No one has loved people who hated him so purely, and no one claiming exclusive truths have ever walked out of their own coffin. And Peter witnessed it all. Peter witnessed it. And I think it's important that you know some of these because I keep referencing Christ's claim and that Peter's claims of Christ. So what are they? 
I want to just share a small handful, so allow me just to sort of shotgun blast these off. But it's important that we know these. Peter knows in Matthew 5 how Jesus alone fulfilled the law and the prophets. Peter knows in John 14 how Jesus alone spoke of himself as the only way to heaven. Peter knows in Matthew 7 how Jesus alone presented himself as the object of faith. Peter knows in John 6 how Jesus alone said he has the words of eternal life. Peter knows in John 3 how Jesus has promised that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Peter remembers clearly, and he tells it to the faces of his judge, jury, and possible executioner that Jesus is the gate to the sheep, John 10. That Jesus is the bread of life, John 6. That Jesus is the narrow door, Luke 13. And that he is the resurrection, John 11. So the only way Peter can make exclusive claims, and the only way I could preach on exclusive claims is because Jesus made such exclusive claims. When these declarations about Christ were spoken, they were spoken to to the skeptics. And we're presented as the solution to any and all who are wondering, what's truth? What's truth? That shotgun blast was spoken to them in those times. I extend the same truth to any skeptics here today. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Calvin Schenck, a theological professor in Virginia, helps explain the divide. He says, Christ did not come just to make a contribution to the religious storehouse of knowledge. The revelation which he brought is the ultimate standard. Since in Christ alone is salvation and truth, many religions' pathways do not adequately reflect the way of God and do not lead to truth and life. Jesus is not, therefore, just the greatest Lord among other lords. There is no other Lord besides him. Jesus is not, therefore, just the greatest Lord among lords. There is no other Lord besides him. Now, perhaps this is where some of us here in this room today and now start to divide. See, up to this point, you were maybe liking sarcastic Peter. You liked that this, this, this man was healed. But verse 12 just crossed the threshold into your life. Boom, divide. Jesus is not therefore just the greatest Lord among lords. There's no other Lord beside him. Boom, divide. And this is the problem with Jesus in our culture or in sharing our faith in Los Angeles. See, Los Angeles' tension with religion isn't necessarily the rejection of a single truth, but the acceptance of all declared truths. See, once our faith trespasses onto somebody else's path or agenda, well, things become irritating. See, reason being, within our context, we breathe the air of pluralism, or we feel the blowing winds of relativism, that being that all truth is subjective and defined by its beholder, that all truth is to be broad, All truth is to be broad, not narrow. There's this um, old Aesop's fable about a uh, frog who sees an ox. And the story goes that one day in the wilderness, 
the frog looked up and he saw this ox there. And he was massive and he was huge and he was strong and he was broad. And the frog, feeling insignificant and inadequate, wanting to become something else, began to imitate. It began to grow and broaden itself and broaden itself and broaden itself, the fable says, until one day the frog exploded. The end. It's a chipper, it's a story for children. It really is. It's beautiful. But the point is this. The broadening of truth, the broadening of truth is a destructive lie. To broaden truth will lead to destruction just as it did for the poor little frog. So if I can say this gently but firmly, pluralism or relativism, Los Angeles' true religions, Pluralism and relativism are a temporary courtesy with everlasting consequences. For anyone to say that all trails, all trails lead up to the mountain, lead to the same peak and the same summit is misinformed. The beast of a theologian, Rabbi Zacharias, he says it with a little more of a bite than I do, but it's important that I read this. All religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the very heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining God, excuse me, who do God is or who is not, and accordingly of defining life's purposes. Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religion, but also a caricatured view of even the best-known ones. Every religion at its core is exclusive. So salvation, as Peter describes it in verse 12, this actually being the first time we see this word in Acts, Peter is offering exclusive salvation, that being forgiveness from sin and removal of guilt, sealing and indwelling in the fruit of God's spirit. So get this, we have to know the beauty of salvation. Salvation is the eradicating of the past with the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of the future with the residing of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is beautiful. We have to see that salvation in Jesus rings the ultimate truth bell. It rings the exclusive truth bell. But, but it also bursts with inclusive melodies and song. Why? Because salvation is offered to all. Salvation is offered to everyone. Salvation is offered to all people through the actions of Jesus Christ. I love this. Please get this. If you don't know this about Christianity or if we've forgotten Christians, hear me now. There are no racial, social, intellectual, economic, or gender criteria that would prevent anybody from everlasting life offered freely in Jesus. There is zero elitism about Christianity or Jesus Christ. And churches that alter that are in trouble when Jesus comes back to claim the church. There's no criteria as far as status goes to receive salvation in Jesus. And don't we, I mean, think about this, as society just melt, just melt when the untouchable are touched, when they are brought in and brought near and befriended. Don't we read BuzzFeed article after BuzzFeed article about how some great person made somebody of lesser statue feel loved? I'll never forget I had just moved to a new city. 
and it was a new school, and I was starting seventh grade, so I was still in my ugly, my ugly phase. You all know what I'm talking about. So I was still in my ugly phase. I was uncertain about life and fashion and skin care and body odor. So I was in that phase. And on my very first day of school, one of my periods was me being like a teacher's aide where I'd walk the campus and I'd drop off notes and packages for other teachers. And then my last class, I was dropping it off. As I'm leaving, I see this really cute girl in the back of the classroom doing this. And I thought, you're doing it, Casey. You're doing it. It's going to be great. You're doing it. And it's like, walk over, be cool, be cool. This time's different. (laughs) You smell fine, buddy. You smell fine. And I got near, I got near to her, and she she did this. I was like, oh, all right. And as I approached her, she slammed my stomach with something. And all I hear is, and she starts laughing with all of her friends, cracking up. And I realized that she had this slammed a stink bomb spray bottle into me and stained my clothes. You're laughing over there. You might have done it. Were you that girl? (laughs) I hear it. But I reeked. I reeked like rotten eggs, which again, granted, probably smelled better than I was smelling. But I was reeking like rotten eggs in the stink bomb, and I was wrecked by it. And I was wrecked by it, and I ran to the bathroom, and I just remember sitting in the stall on my very first day of school in a brand new school, weeping. I was weeping. So I bring up this illustration because salvation brings others in and proves that Jesus can be trusted. This girl, this girl, (laughs) this girl who I thought was bringing me in could not be trusted. And as a new junior hire who was pushed to the margins and an outcast and a reject of the school, I just wanted somebody to trust. I wanted to trust somebody. And if you know anything about my past, that was hard to come by. And as I'm sitting in the bathroom stall weeping, I hear, and it's Ryan Sanders, who none of you know. (laughs) It was a kid who smelled me or heard about what happened, and he gave me his jacket, and he says, throw your shirt away and just wear this the rest of the day. And Ryan Sanders could be trusted as he stripped himself of what was his, and he gave it to this outcast dismissed seventh grader, this cast aside, this unliked, and this unknown little boy. So with that, allow me to ask a question. Christians, to the Christians, why do you believe? I hope it's not just because my parents were Christians. Ta-da, like here I am. I, I hope it's not that. What is it about Jesus to you that in the face of opposition, like Peter and John, you still cling to Jesus? Why do you believe when life sucks? Christians, why do you believe when finances are low? Christians, why do you believe when somebody you love dearly was just lost? For me, yes, I believe in the prophetic claims, and yes, I 
you know, I, I stand assured of the narrowness of Christianity. But for me, Jesus proved he was the one who could be trusted with my life. That's why I believe. And it isn't, I mean, isn't that what all of us, again, want to just trust our life to somebody? We want to entrust our life to somebody? As Jesus, in a much greater way than Ryan Sanders, stripped himself and clothed me and accepted me for not what I could offer or how funny I was or if I could entertain him or if I had a reputation or high social fame. I love Jesus. I trust Jesus. I love Jesus because Jesus first loved me. Despite my lack of failure and shortcomings, he loves me and he loves you. And that was proven in his actions and sacrifice. Friends here today, Jesus, know this, Jesus can be trusted. Because he single-handedly answers all of life's toughest questions. Who do I trust myself to? What about the messiness of my past? What does my future look like? What is my identity? Could anyone love me? And when this very life falls apart, Jesus doesn't. The Christians, I asked you, but if I can ask the unbelievers or dare I say skeptics of the room, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? I can pretty much guarantee no scientific equation will bring you to your knees to Jesus. I doubt any philosophical logic will drive you to the cross. And I even doubt that if I said the opposite of today's theme and that Christianity was fully inclusive and that pluralism is exactly what Jesus taught, I doubt we'd still, that you'd still believe. Could it be that Jesus just doesn't fit? He just doesn't fit the way you want to live your life. Like an SUV in a compact parking space, which all of us know a lot about. It just don't fit. Could it, be that, could it be that, as it, as it certainly was for the disciples in our day, that he just doesn't fit? Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected. He was rejected by you, the builders. This very stone which has become the cornerstone. See, when one gets all, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines and starts building a home or starts building a temple, they hunt down the stone that fits their plans the construction of their desires, and they reject the ones that don't fit. That don't fit, that don't fit. Peter's saying at the completion of the building, Peter, Peter is saying at the completion of the building, the very one that you have rejected who didn't fit your plans was actually the legit cornerstone. See, the ones you rejected is actually the most important piece. The one you rejected, the load-bearing rock, is everything in life. Everything in life stands upon that piece, that cornerstone. Psalm 118, a psalm written of Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, says this. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is either the rock in which we build our lives, or he's the very same rock which we stumble over and have problems with. See, Jesus back in the day spoke of lives not built on the cornerstone. He likened to a house built on the sand. My family's visiting right now from Boston, and we went to the beach, and we're building these little castles, sand, you know, castles of sand, and every time a little sprinkle of a wave comes over, the, 
the castle would fall apart. Then we walk down this rocky, rocky pier, and these giant waves could do nothing to the rock. Nothing. See, if you don't know Jesus, or if we don't know as a church, if we do not know as a church, I want us to understand this right now. I want us to understand that we are desperately needing of him within our life. Church, this is why we do what we do, is it not? I want us to know this. This is why we do, is it not? This is why, excuse me, this is why we do what we do. Collective, we looked right now at the irritation of Jesus and salvation of Jesus. Collective church, I want us to know right now the motivation of Jesus. The motivation of Jesus, this beautiful exclusivity that Jesus has come to save us, that Jesus can be trusted. This should turn us into radical agents of transformation in your and my context. To the lengths of exclusive beliefs, lead us, commission us to the most inclusive behavior the world has ever known. See, if Jesus has come to us from these, you know, he's coming to the, those marginalized by society or he's coming all the way to those who share the name of CEO, the title of CEO, we have to be people as well who touch the untouchable and love the unlovable. Not ashamed of our faith. Because to silence our faith is to, is to deny our faith. If God's mission is our commission, then you know the urgency and the need of carrying these claims, these truths, and the love of Jesus to your neighbor. Do not expect me, I can't carry these claims and these truths and this love to your neighbor. He can't and she can't. God has placed you as an embedded missionary, as a radical agent for transformation on your street, in your apartment building, in your dorm. Just imagine what your block, just think about what your office would look like. Just imagine what it would look like if the incredible force of the gospel, the very gospel which humbles us to serve, the very gospel which leads us to love, the very gospel which motivates us to give, the very gospel which invites in the outcast, the very gospel that Jesus died in our place and rose again. Could you imagine if that incredible force of the gospel or his gospel, was, was, was released in your context. Christians, collective church, I'm here today to remind us, to remind us it can be, it can be in and through you and me. Let's pray.